are the fifth Sunday, so there's no children's church this morning. So parents and children, please be aware of that. So parents, children, and everyone else, uh, please open up your Bibles to Luke 14. We'll be in verses 1 uh, through 11. And as you're turning there, let me pray. Heavenly Father, this, we come now to your word. So Father, would you show us your glory? Would you show us our sin and our need? And would you then show us Christ? So God, we pray all these things now in your son's name. Amen. So we all want to live a life that matters. A life whose ripples will echo into eternity. What of your legacy? What will you leave behind? Who will remember you when you're gone? These are questions that often exist just beneath the surface of our lives. They drive us, compel us, and can discourage us in a myriad of ways, plaguing our sleepless nights, haunting our deepest regrets, the woulda, coulda, shouldas of our days. And friends, whether we are old, young, or somewhere in between, each of us wants our lives to matter, to be of some consequence, to have an impact, to make a difference, be it ever so small. Because intrinsic to the very core of our humanity is that the Creator God created us with and for a purpose, to, as Genesis 1 tells us, to fill the earth and to subdue it that we were to be builders of the kingdom, God's kingdom here on earth. Yet a sin entered into the world and death through sin, rather than being about the building up of God's kingdom, we instead tragically began to fixate upon our own. Our passage this morning takes place around our dinner table. And as we gather around the table of our passage this morning, we need to realize that there is a rather awkward dinner guest who's been invited. And his name is Jesus. And we need to see that there's a good bit of tension. There's stress. There's angst at work in this passage. So if we don't feel it, we're not reading it correctly. Jesus is going to ask some unsettling questions. He's going to do some socially unacceptable things. And he's going to tell rather a troubling story. Because Jesus sees with sovereign precision the real tragedy of this dinner party. That seated around this table is a group of men who desperately want to live lives that matter. Yet that which matters most to them matters very little to God. There are men here who are, who are uh, proverbially polishing the silver or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Yet the reality is that for all of their scurrying, flurrying, and hurrying, the ship is still going down. And that which they are desperately fixating upon, that which they are devoting themselves to, will only ever come to nothing. 
So can the same be said of you and me? Are we living and giving ourselves for that which really and eternally matters? Or are we settling for the building up of our own kingdoms, seeking our own glory? Whose greatness is the gaze of our lives fixed upon? Whose kingdom are we seeking to build and to grow? And to answer those questions, we will need to encounter Jesus this morning. We will need to encounter Jesus, the most awkward and gracious dinner guest. And in our passage this morning, we will, I want us to see three things. Three things about Jesus. That Jesus engages his opposition. That Jesus exposes their messy hearts. And that Jesus will expound for us true greatness. So hear now God's word from Luke 14, verses 1 through 11. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They took him. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that had fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do, you, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But then when you... But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Well, first point is that Jesus engages his opposition. To put it mildly, there existed some tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the lawyers had built for themselves a rather nice life. They were the institutional powers that be. They had come to enjoy the honor and the prestige and the respect and the influence that their position in that society had afforded them. But then along came this local yokel, from the backwoods of Nazareth, who's threatening to unravel and to unwind all that they've spent their lives striving to achieve. You see, Jesus' greatness had become a threat to their own. His proclamation of a greater kingdom was a threat to their own. That's why throughout the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees always seemed to be lying in wait for Jesus to make a mistake. Because in their minds, Jesus was becoming a little too big for his britches. 
So they desperately needed to figure out a way to knock him down a peg or two. Yet the assumption of verse 1 is that an invitation had been both extended to Jesus and accepted by Jesus. But from the start of this encounter, there seems to be some unsavory elements. There seems to be a good bit of uh, skullduggery and tomfoolery going on. This whole meal seems to be an occasion for a nefarious ruse, a ploy, a conspiracy of sorts. For as verse 1 tells us, they were watching him carefully. The Pharisees were looking high and low for any misstep, fixating upon anything and everything for any semblance of a way to prove their superiority to Jesus, that they were greater than him. Yet thus far, Jesus had proved to be a rather frustrating and formidable opponent. That's why in verse 2, a man with dropsy just so happens to be placed right in front of Jesus. But the thing is, Jesus seems to be aware that he's being watched. He seems to know that he's walking into a trap. That he's going into a hostile environment. That despite the chef's culinary acumen, that this won't be the most pleasant or a comfortable dining experience. Jesus knew that this meal was going to be a little spicier than the invitation may have suggested. Yet graciously and gloriously, he enters into the fray anyways. He doesn't shrink back. He doesn't circle the wagons or form a holy huddle. But he enters in and he engages with those who really don't like him. Those who would seek to undermine and to destroy him. And those who will one day soon have him nailed to a cross of wood. And brothers and sisters, can the same be said of us? Our Savior had a way of engaging with people who really didn't like him. People who were quite literally out to get him. Yet he did so with both courage and with grace. So to my question, are we actively seeking to engage the people that our sovereign God has placed around us each and every day? For in the providence of God, we bump up against all kinds of people, people who like us and people who don't, people who desperately need the good news of the kingdom of God. And if people really didn't like Jesus, should we really be expecting our experience to be all that much different, particularly as his disciples? Is our God calling us to be comfortable in this life? Or is he calling us to be comforted by him throughout this life? What are our expectations and what is our call as Jesus' disciples? as those who would follow after him. Particularly as we hear the winds of culture howling all around us, driving Christianity and her beliefs to, towards the margins of our society, seeking to hinder, to thwart, to discourage, and to mock our way of life as we seek to live faithfully in a culture that seems to be increasingly hostile to the gospel. Yet as our Savior reminds us in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
So while the temptation across the ages has been to shrink back, to circle the wagons, to pull away, or to hide ourselves in a holy huddle, our Savior has instead called us to press in, even into the great unknown, that while here be dragons, our Savior still calls us to faithfully, to courageously, and to graciously engage the world, to engage our friends, to engage our family, our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, and our teammates with and through the precious hope of Jesus. For while we were dead in our, in our sins, for while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. So what drives our engagement with our enemies is that Christ engaged with us when we were his. Well, having engaged his opposition, Jesus then exposes their messy hearts. In Luke eleven forty two, 42, Jesus says to the Pharisee, Woe to you, Pharisee, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Essentially, Jesus has been telling the Pharisees for a few chapters now that they're fixating on all the wrong things, that they're minoring in the majors and majoring in the minors. But here were men committed to the status quo, committed to the social conventions of the day, valuing them over and above almost everything else. And why shouldn't they? Things were working quite comfortably for them. And much to their liking, they likely enjoyed many creaturely comforts. Much honor, respect, prestige, and influence. Yet Jesus wants them to see life as it actually is. To see beneath the surface of their lives. To see the mess lurking in their hearts. Which he does by revealing essentially two things that have plagued humanity since Genesis 3. That we too often think too little of others, and that we too often think far too much about ourselves. So we'll take those issues in order. So how we think too little of others. There, that day was a man with dropsy. And for reference, dropsy caused significant edemas or swelling of the soft tissue areas of the body. It was a condition that would have caused great pain severe discomfort, and would have made very difficult the ordinary task of life. But it wasn't a condition that was immediately life-threatening, which is an essential point to understand because while the Mosaic law offers no prohibition against acts of mercy, over the years, the Pharisaical tradition had developed a rather robust system of rules and regulations for the optimization of Sabbath observance. Included in these traditions and regulations was a prohibition on medical treatments for non-life-threatening issues. That essentially, that if a person wasn't dying, you couldn't help them. Dropsy also would have rendered a person ceremonially unclean. So this man's presence there amongst the religious powers and authorities would have been culturally shocking and unexpected. Culturally speaking, this was a man who shouldn't be where he is, when he is. So his presence sticks out like a sore thumb. To be clear, 
The text remains eerily silent as to whether or not this man was planted there or is merely a possibility that presented itself. But what is clear is that he's not valued as a person made in the image of God. You see, amidst the vastness of all of their pharisaical regulations and traditions, the Pharisees had lost sight of the very essence of the law. To love God and to love people. As Jesus summarizes for us in Matthew 22. Yet Jesus sees this man. He saw his suffering. He saw his pain, prompting Jesus to ask the table the million-dollar question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? See, Jesus' questions have a way of cutting through our messiness, don't they? He gets right to the heart of the occasion. Here is a man who needs to be healed, who needs to be cared for. Yet the Pharisees are excited and eager, not because Jesus is going to heal a hurting man from their community, but because this might provide them with the opportunity to expose Jesus as the charlatan that they were convinced that he was. In the Pharisees' mind, they finally put Jesus between a rock and a hard place, between the horns of a dilemma. So notice how they respond. It's nothing but crickets. They're just eating their popcorn, waiting for the movie to begin. So Jesus took him. Or as it could be translated, took hold of this man. He then heals him. And then the ESV says he sent him away. Or a word that is elsewhere translated, he set him free. Having done this, Jesus turns. And he asks the room the question of verse 5. Which of you, having a son or an ox that had fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? See, again, Jesus slices through the mess of it all. He cuts to the quick of messy hearts by asking a rather preposterous question. For what kind of father, or what kind of farmer for that matter, would just leave his own son or his own ox just hanging out in the bottom of a well? In both cases, the obvious answer is that what was required in that moment is an act of mercy. For you see, a son was love, and an ox was valuable. Yet this man with dropsy was neither loved nor valuable by these men. He's merely a ploy, a possibility, but not a person. So they raise neither their hand nor their voice to help or to aid. So again, the dinner party falls into yet another awkward silence, which takes us to the second thing that Jesus reveals about their hearts. He reveals how they think too highly of themselves. In verse 7, Jesus notices a curious thing as they awkwardly gather around the dinner table. They all seem to be jockeying for position. As As to who could get to sit where. In the ancient world, the closer you sat to the host, the higher your social status. The greater your prestige. So the scrum is on. And Jesus gets to watch all of these proud and powerful men jockeying back and forth for position, comparing and contrasting their resumes, their bank accounts, their positions of power and influence. And Jesus sees both the absurdity and the tragedy of this. So he takes the opportunity to tell them a really awkward parable in verses 8 through 10. 
It's a parable about a wedding feast and the do's and the don'ts for how one should go about picking their seat. Essentially, Jesus is exposing that the comparison game that they are currently attempting to play is a fool's errand. Because when it comes to where you sit at the feast, it doesn't really matter what you think of you. And it doesn't really matter what other guests think of you. What does matter is what the host thinks. Because it's his party. It's his feast. So what he says goes. Yet the comparison game is a trap. It's a trap that we so easily fall into. Because we long for greatness. We long to live a life that really matters. The problem is that we often feel the need to quantify that greatness. And to do so, we seek to compare and contrast our lives with the lives of others. Yet greatness can't be found in a resume, in a bank account, in the number of followers we have on Instagram, YouTube, or other social media. It can't be found in how successful our children are or our grandchildren are. Because the recognition of others can't obtain for us the greatness we so desperately desire. And that's why Jesus expounds for us true greatness and where it can be found. Which takes us to our third point here this morning. Jesus expounds to us true greatness. In his parable in verses 8 to 10, Jesus makes a rather startling point. Greatness that is self-pronounced or self-proclaimed is no greatness at all. And it is a greatness that will only lead to one's shame and humiliation in being called out by the hosts before the whole room to take a lesser seat. For merit-based greatness is but a phantom, a delusion, a figment of our own imagination, never actually obtaining the greatness that it so desperately desires. Yet the truth is, latent in every heart, latent in every heart of every person in this room, whether we believe it or not, is a longing to hear the sovereign God's well done. But that is a well done that none of us can merit. That none of us can earn in and of ourselves. No, we are necessarily, utterly, and completely dependent upon the greatness that is not our own. See, the Pharisees were desperate for greatness. The problem was that they were just looking for it in all the wrong places. And it's the same true of you and is the same true of me. Have we too been snookered by the same trap as the Pharisees? But our God is so gracious. For Jesus doesn't leave us in our folly, but graciously confronts us with the realities of his true greatness, teaching us that true greatness isn't found in our own merits, nor is it something that can be won in a mere game of comparison. In fact, true greatness is never determined by what we think, nor what others think of us. True greatness is only ever discovered in relationship with the Lord. That's the logical conclusion this parable puts before us. That when you're at the wedding feast, your list of accomplishments, your resume, the numbers within your bank accounts won't really matter. 
What truly matters, what eternally matters, is your relationship with the one hosting the feast. And friends, that relationship is the relationship freely offered to us in the gospel. Where Jesus, our Savior, invites us to cast our deadly doing down and to look to him in faith. A faith that is a gift of God. For in looking to Jesus, what we discover is that Jesus, through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, has accomplished in himself our redemption, our redemption from sin, and our adoption into God's family. That on the cross, Jesus took upon himself the guilt and the wrath that our sins deserved, giving to us his righteous perfection. So that in Christ, we can now stand before a holy God, not only justified, but we have been brought into the family as his beloved sons and daughters. Therefore, if true greatness can only be discovered in relationship with the Lord, what the gospel reveals is that the host of this grand feast is none other than God our Heavenly Father. And what he thinks of us is that we are his own. That in Christ, that we are his children. That we are, as Zechariah says, the apple of his eye. Therefore, on account of what Christ has done, we can now boldly approach his throne. As a child approaches their father. Confidently knowing that God our Father has prepared a place for us. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel is gloriously good news. It is only in response to this good news that we can begin to live out what Jesus calls us to in verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. We can live courageously humble lives, or as verse 10 says, we can sit in the low place, Because we're not listening for the vindication, for the approval, for the exaltations of men, but of God our Father. We therefore intently and diligently listen to the voice of the great and glorious hosts who just so happens to be God our Heavenly Father. True greatness then is necessarily saturated in gospel humility. For the manifestations of true greatness are seen in the life of gospel humility. A humility that looks to Jesus because we can humbly, we can humble ourselves because Christ our Savior emptied himself. Who though he was in the form of God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. Meaning that rather than seeking and striving to exalt ourselves, we can exalt in the Lord our God. It means that we can live for the fame of his name rather than merely living for the fame of our own. That we can care for and look out for the good of others knowing that we have a God who will do that for us even to the othermost. But what does that look like tomorrow morning? What does that look like in the lunchroom, the break room or in the boardroom? What about when you feel life, when you feel overlooked or dishonored? Well, it looks like an ordinary life 
of faithfulness. Where the struggle of our days are met and endured with a humble reliance and trust upon the Lord. Walking in humility with both God and man. Trusting in the sovereign providences of our God to will and to work for his good pleasure and glory. Yet also, somehow, for our good. For the path to true greatness can only be traversed in gospel humility as we entrust our lives to the sovereign hand of God our Father who lovingly provides for us his children. For he knows us from the hairs in our heads to the struggles deep within our souls. A father who invites us to draw near to him through the precious means of grace. And as we do so, as Zephaniah tells us, we can hear him singing over our lives. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening to our Father's great and glorious and booming voice? Are we listening to his Spirit's ministering presence in our soul, whispering into the depths of our hearts the glorious realities of our adoptions as sons and daughters of the King? Our God is speaking. So are we listening to him? In life's smallest and most seemingly insignificant moments. Are we listening to him in those moments when all other lights go out? Because we exist in a noisy world. A world that incessantly clamors for our attention. That by it, it might rob us of our joy. And discourage us by drowning out the voice of our Heavenly Father. Noise that would seek to assign value and significance to our lives. A value and significance not found in Christ, but in our view of ourselves or in the opinion of others. So may we instead, by faith, hone in on the voice of our Heavenly Father. The voice of the great and glorious host of the wedding feast of the Lamb who beckons us as his children to draw near to him in faith, so that on account of his grace, that we may live a life of humbly walking with God our Father. And as we do so, may we ever look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. For, as, for in the words of Mary D. James, worldlings prize their gems of beauty. They cling to gilded toys of dust. They boast of wealth and fame and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust. Since mine eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So enchained my spirit's vision looking at the crucified. Oh, what wonder, how amazing. Jesus, glorious King of kings, deigns to call me his beloved. Let's me rest beneath his wings. You would pray with me. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and for your presence with us and how you proclaim to the depths of our souls and the depths of our struggles that you are for us and that you are with us to the end. Help us now, we pray, in response to the glories of your grace to live a life of humble faith listening to you, our Father's voice, declaring to 